0: This is a series called King Jesus. We're going to be walking through the last week of Jesus' life on earth. I mean, not every single event, because that would take a, a year pretty much. and it, won't, it would not take a week. Actually, I mean, if we came to church every single day for a week, twice a day, it could go through a week. If we just lived Jesus' life, we could also do it in a week, right? So, no, this year we're going to be going through some of the major events happening in the last week of um, of Jesus' life before he is killed. And then we're even going to go a couple weeks after that and talk about his resurrection and what Jesus did um, after he rose from the dead and what that means for us. But for context, before this passage we're going to get to today, Jesus, he's been teaching for a few years now. Like we... Like The whole story of the Bible is about Jesus. The four Gospels are about Jesus' life. But it really is just about the last three years of Jesus' life. So these last few years, he's been going around teaching. He's preaching. He's calling disciples. He's raising people from the dead. He's walking on water, doing all those cool things. And he's doing things that are making other people mad. Um, So a lot of people... Uh, They assume that Jesus might be the Messiah. They assume that Jesus might be the Savior figure, the long-awaited King of Israel. But nobody knows for sure. And so if he was, at the end of the day, um, no one really knew for sure who Jesus was. And so Jesus, he is now coming to the end of his life, and he knows That is about to be the end. He knows what awaits for him whenever he gets to Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. And so he knows that this is coming to the end. And so as he's getting closer to the city, he knows he's about to have a lot more teachings and a lot more encounters. And he also knows this is where he's ultimately going to finish the mission that he came to earth to do by fulfilling Israel's history, by dying in our place for our sins. So all this is on Jesus' mind. He knows that this is going to, to culminate everything that he came to do. So if you have a Bible, you can go to Mark chapter 11. Uh, this passage is, is known as the triumphal entry, but it's also called Palm Sunday. So you might hear that too. This is the Sunday before Easter. Um, so Palm Sunday. So Mark chapter 11, verse 1 says, so whenever they approached Jerusalem, at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you, and as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and he'll send it back right away. So, like, Jesus, he knows what's in the city. And We don't have to assume that Jesus has been in that city before because the Bible doesn't tell us. But instead, we assume that Jesus, because he's God, he knows, like he already knows what's happening there. So he's like predicting, like, hey, like, go find this donkey. And the people are like, how do you know there's going to be a donkey? He's like, don't worry about it. Like, there's going to be a donkey. And then he's like, they're going to say, why do you need it? He's like, tell them this. And so, of course, that's what happens. Uh, This might not seem very dramatic or very important, but this is one of the first steps that Jesus takes to publicly tell everybody who he is and what he came the earth to do. So maybe you're asking like why does Jesus need a colt? Why does Jesus need a baby donkey? Like that doesn't make any sense. Like why doesn't he get a horse or why can't he just walk into Jerusalem? It's to fulfill another prophecy that was prophesied about Jesus 4 or 500 years before Jesus. So in Zechariah chapter 9, this is a prophecy that was written. It Says rejoice greatly Daughter Zion, shout in triumph Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, and he is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. So we need to understand like what the people of Israel, what they thought, what they felt, and what they hoped for, in order to understand like what is this passage even about? Like, why should they rejoice? Why is a king coming and why is he riding on a donkey? Like, what was going on through the minds of the people that Zechariah was actually talking to in that moment? So, I'm going to ask you guys to go ahead and put on your history hat for a second um, because this is going to be important. We're going to go through a lot of history. But this is going to be important to understand the context of what has actually taken place. It's going to make so much more sense if I explain a couple things to you. So, Israel a nation in the Middle East, Israel was God's chosen people. God chose them. He chose this group of people to reflect God to the world. They were to be a royal nation by which every other nation in the world would be blessed by. And so God promised that there would be a king that would sit on the throne of Israel forever in uh, in the line of David, which was one of their greatest kings. But because of Israel's constant rebellion and failure to reflect God back to the world, God promised consequences if they did not repent and turn back to him. And so long story short, and that is a very long story, it's the entire Old Testament pretty much. Long story short, they did not repent and they did not return back to God. And so God kept his promise. So God allowed his chosen people to be conquered to be almost destroyed, and the people of Israel, they were sent as exiles, pretty much as slaves, to a different country, to a different land of Assyria and then Babylon. So think about it. It's God's chosen people. God promised that the entire world would be blessed because of them. He promised that there would be a king that would sit on the throne forever, and then they failed God, and so God allows them to almost be destroyed. After 70 years in exile, God allows some of the people to return back to the land and to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And so it was at this time that Zechariah was prophesying. Zechariah was actually one of the people that was exiled. He was actually a slave, and he is actually one of the people that is there rebuilding the temple. And so imagine this: Everybody is down. Everybody is so confused. They thought, like, we were God's chosen people. Why would God allow this to happen? Why would we be slaves? Why would we be exiles? Why would we come back to our country, to our city, and find everything destroyed? I thought God had promises for us. I thought God had a a king for us. I thought he was going to be in charge. And so this time there's no king and there's no high priest. And they're wondering, did God fail them? Did God lie to them? And so as at this time Zechariah promises this. He says rejoice greatly, shout in triumph. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous, he is victorious, he is humble and riding on a darkness or on a donkey. So in their darkness, God speaks hope. He is saying that one day the true king will come back, and he will be righteous, and he will be victorious. He says, it looks like everything is going bad right now. It seems like everything is, is not going according to plan. But one day, the king will come, and he will come in righteousness, and he will come victorious. But they're asking, like, but when? How long do we have to wait? And at that moment, because they, they did not have a king. They didn't know when that king was going to come. And so they continue to be under the control of a different empire for 200 years, the Persian Empire. And so during those 200 years, that, that's a long time. Like in Bible times, like we can just read that and not understand what that means. But think about like America's only been a country for a little over 200 years. So they were... Conquered by the Persian Empire for 200 years. And then this king comes in, Alexander the Great. If you're in history, you know about him. The Greek Empire comes and takes over the nation for 300 years. And so they're like, this has been 500 years of, of more um, people coming and conquering us. When is this king going to come? And then the Roman Empire comes and they conquer them. And that it is at this time that Jesus comes onto the scene for over 500 years. After Zechariah promises this, after they were already exiled and destroyed, they're still waiting. Where's our king? Where's the savior? Where's the person that's gonna come and, and deliver us? Where is our savior? That's what they're wondering. And that is the people of Israel during Jesus' time. This is all going through their mind. They know about the prophecies, they know about what God promised, and they know there's waiting. When is when is everything gonna happen? So Mark chapter 11, verse 4. So the disciples, they went and they found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, like, what are you doing tying the colt? And they answered just as Jesus told them to, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their clothes on it and he he sat on it. And many people spread their clothes on it or on the road and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields and those who went ahead of, of, of those who went ahead and those who follow shouted hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord bless is the coming kingdom of our father david hosanna in the highest heaven and so jesus he went into jerusalem he went into the temple and after looking around at everything since it was already late he went out to bethany with the 12 so what jesus told the disciples about the donkey and its owner, it happened exactly as Jesus said it was going to happen. That's because Jesus, he's God, he knows what's going to happen. Uh, But this is also the first time in the Bible and the only time that Jesus rides an animal. So that's important, that's significant, because it is Jesus telling the people what he came to do. The people know exactly what Jesus is doing and saying. They they know that Jesus is saying to them, like, remember Zechariah? Remember that promise. Remember when God said that one day a king will come. Remember whenever he said that one day that God will send a king and he will be righteous, he will be victorious. He says, I am him. I am that promise that God promised. I am him. And so the people, they knew what he was saying. And so that's why they spread their clothes on the, on the road and they put branches on the road. It was like a red carpet treatment of, of saying, like, finally, our king is coming so Hosanna, that praise they said, that's a Hebrew word that basically says, like, save now. Like, like save us now. Like, finally you're here. Uh, but it also just meant, like, a general shout of praise. And so the people, they're finally acknowledging that Jesus is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this is the starting point of the gospel. This is the starting point of the good news that Jesus came to bring. So you might be asking, like, what does this mean for us today. Like, why is this important to us? Why is this good news for us? This is good news because, listen, are you listening? This is good news because it solves the problem that the bad news brought, right? Like, that's kind of how good news works. It's good news because it solves the problem that the bad news brought. And the problem that the world has faced is the absence of God's kingdom on the earth in the absence of of God's kingdom in our life. Whenever we are not living in God's kingdom, whenever the world is not living in God's kingdom, we face death in the absence of God's abundant life. That's why God created us. He created us to live for his kingdom and to live in his abundant life. So let's go back to the very beginning of history. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 1, when he created humans, he made us in his image. He made humans to be his image bearers, to to bear the image of God. Our job as humans, as human beings, was to represent God to ourselves, to others, to represent God to the world, and to be co-rulers with God. That's why God int- originally created Adam and Eve to be co rulers with God on this world. We were to represent God's presence and his authority in the world, which was his temple. This is what God said in Genesis chapter 1. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They were rule. Notice the ruling language, notice the kingdom language. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the ground. This was our reason for existing. This is the reason why God created human beings. Our responsibility as humans, created in the likeness, in the image of God. And, so, and then we understand that God, he created us, but then we get to chapter 3 of Genesis, and the fall happens. Basically, I, you guys remember the story of the snake and the serpent comes and lies and deceives Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. When this happened, this was more than just her sinning. This is more than just a moral failing. It wasn't just that she disobeyed God. She messed up. She wasn't enough. She, she disobeyed. That's, that's not all that was there. Instead, it was a betrayal of our kingly and our queenly and priestly responsibilities that God had given us. Instead of ruling over the garden, instead of ruling over the snake and the serpent in subduing and representing God's presence to the serpent... We became traitors. Instead of showing the serpent, instead of showing the garden that we were representing God, we instead put ourselves in the place that God was. The problem wasn't that we were sinners. The problem was that we were traitors, that we put ourselves where God was supposed to be. And so we know the story that God, he banished Adam and Eve from the garden, but he still sent them with that same authority. He still sent them with that same mission to be co-rulers with him. But as you read through the Bible over and over again, we humans, we fail to co-rule with God. We fail to represent God the way that we should to the world. And over and over again, we become traitors. It's so much more than just we sinned. It's so much more than just that we disobeyed. But we are deconstructing the world. We're We're putting ourselves in the place that only God can be. We become traitors. And that's just the first three chapters of the Bible. But God, he, he doesn't stop there. God, He takes that same authority. He takes that same thing that He tried to give to Adam and Eve, and He gives it to this guy named Abraham. Abraham, he was the father of Israel. There's the na- he he told him, or he chose Abraham to form an order of a nation of kings and priests. The assignment that God gave to Adam was now given to Israel because Israel is all of Abraham's dependents or descendants. So the same thing that God gives to Adam and Eve, he says, you are created in my likeness. You are supposed to rule and subdue, you to be co-rulers with us. He gives that to the nation of Israel. He chooses that nation to do that instead. So long story short, that doesn't go as planned either. The nation of Israel, they end up as slaves in Egypt. And so God, he gives that same thing, the same um, authority he tried to give to Adam and Eve, the same one he tried to give to the nation of Israel. He gives to this guy named Moses. Moses, he leads the people out of Israel. You guys know the story of him parting the Red Sea and the ten plagues coming on Egypt. He leads the people out of, of Egypt and leads them back into the promised land, which is supposed to be a new garden, and he gives them the, the law. And so the job and task of Israel is the same. It's to be kings. It's to be priest, and it's to rule with God and represent God. But just like Adam and Eve, Israel fails, and Moses fails. Everybody fails. So then God, he thinks of a different way. He says, I'm going to take this nation of Israel, and you guys want a king, so I'm going to set up an actual king system for you guys. And so the first king of Israel, this guy named Saul, he failed terribly. And then David, he comes on, the King David, and he does okay, but then his son takes over and then his son, and it just goes terribly wrong from there. It's like a really bad Netflix series of just all of this sin and all of this craziness going on and, and like... Brothers killing brothers and trying to take power and all that kind of stuff. It literally could be a Netflix series and it would be really good. Um, or not good, depending on how you look at it. And people would watch it, basically. A lot of a lot of bad stuff going on. Um, but they don't rule the way that they are supposed to. And this leads to Jesus. And this is the only way that the gospel message makes sense. Because not o- Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah that came to save a Jewish nation from their evil oppressors. But Jesus is finally seen as the true image of God, the true image bearer of God. God, he said he created humans to be made in his likeness, to be made in the image of God, and we all failed that every time. But Jesus is now finally the the true image and the true likeness of God. And so that job that God gave to Adam and Eve and then Abraham, and then Israel, and then Moses, and then David. It has now finally been given to Jesus, and Jesus is the only one that ever did it perfectly. So the story of King Jesus, it's more than just a Jewish Savior coming to save a nation. It's about Jesus finally and perfectly doing what no one in the history of histories was ever able to do. And that's just the beginning of the gospel message. The, at the bandwagon and come back. Paul, he, he goes on, and there's so many passages about this. Like once you see this part of the gospel, it's everywhere in the New Testament. But this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter two. He says, we Christians, those who made in the image of God, we should adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Remember, he was in the form of God. He humbles us and takes on the likeness of humanity. And whenever he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, because he emptied himself, because he humbled himself. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, and that he is the King. And because the, we are his subjects... Because that we are under his authority, we are under his control. That is why we submit to him. And this is what the whole Bible points to from the very first verse of the Bible to the very last one. The question is, who is the rightful Lord of God's temple? Who is the rightful Lord of the earth and of heaven? And the answer is shifts in the, in the Old Testament, talking about it, is it going to be Adam and Eve? Is it going to be Abraham? Is it going to be Moses? Is it going to be David? And it shifts all the way until it gets to Jesus. And there's an exclamation point that says, finally, the king has come. The king that Zechariah promised, the king that God promised has come. And so, yes, whenever we think about what our problem is, what the bad news is, our problem is sin. And yes, we need to be forgiven of our sinfulness and our sins. But that sin and that forgiveness is connected to our lordly assignments and our priestly responsibilities and our failing to become like God and to take God's job to make them ours. Like, yes, we've messed up. Like, yes, we need to be forgiven. But it's so much more than just we messed up and we need to be forgiven for that. It's that we failed the responsibility that God gave us to represent him to the world, to become like him, to be made and recreated in his image, to, to, to tell everybody about who Jesus is, that is what our responsibility is. And so the only one worthy to sit on the throne is Jesus. And at the end of history, there's only going to be one who is worthy. The Apostle John, he gets a glimpse of what heaven is going to look like at the very end of time, at the very end of history. And so he, he has a vision, and he's standing in the throne room of God, and all the angels, they're asking, they're wondering, who is worthy? Who's going to be the only, like, who's going to be the one that's worthy to open up the scroll that helps the end of history take place? And so the angels are saying, like, they search all of heaven. They search all of earth. Try to find one person who is worthy enough to open the scroll, but they find nobody. Not any of us. Not David. Not Moses. Nobody was worthy. And so the Bible says that John, he literally begins to weep. He literally begins to cry. And so the Revelation chapter 5, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. And then John, he said, I saw the one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures among them. And it talks about how all the angels, they see the lamb that was slaughtered, that, that, that died in our place. And it says all the angels and everyone in heaven, they fall to the knees and they began to worship and they sang a new song. And this is what the verse is right there. Verse 5. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered. You purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. The question is, where will you be at the end of history? Are you going to be with them on your knees, bowing and submitting to Jesus as king? Or are you still going to be trying to do it on your own? Trying to figure it out on your own? trying Trying to find happiness and satisfaction on your own? Trying to make everything work for yourself, by yourself? Or will you be on your knees, worshiping and praising the only one who was ever worthy? It talks about some graphic language there, that he was slaughtered. He was was the perfect innocent lamb. The lamb is Old Testament imagery of of sacrifice. But basically, he he died in our place. He knew that the only way for us to get to that place where we could worship him, to get into heaven, to get into his presence, to get back into that that Garden of Eden in chapter 1, where we were made to be in the first place, was if he died for us. Because he knew that there was no way we could do it by ourselves. He died in our place. He took He went to the cross for us in our place. And he died in our place. And he is the only one that was worthy enough to do it. So my question is, where will you be? Will you be trying to do it on your own? Or will you be on your knees submitting to Jesus as king and taking on your responsibility to represent him to the world? And if it's the second one, if you want to be the one worshiping him and submitting to him, it starts now. It starts now, submit to Jesus as your Lord and your master of your life and then live in a way that pleases him. That's what the Bible says. It's about submitting to him as the Lord and then doing what he says and living in a way that pleases him. So with every head bowed and every eye closed,